rise and hear the word that God has prepared for us today. Looks like we're starting right from the beginning in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You sh will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. May these words be embedded in your heart and thus begins the struggle of man. Please be seated, thanks. We were sorry to have missed last week. It sounds like it was a, a great service that God anointed and blessed. But we're really looking forward to next week with the baptisms and the new members. That's going to be great. I have three points this morning. Uh, number one, the Bible is important. Number two, the Bible is very important. And number three, everyone should get baptized. This new series is entitled, Myths That Make You Miserable, and uh, the scripture was read, so let's prepare our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it just so clearly conveys your thoughts to us, thoughts that are higher than ours, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So we want to set our minds and hearts on things above that we may understand your word and your will. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Every December, Time Magazine announces its selection for the person of the year. Well, in 2016, no one made more headlines than Donald Trump, the president of the divided states of America. Another annual tradition is when the Oxford Dictionary identifies its word of the year. And for 2016, that word was post-truth. It means literally after the truth. We live in the post-Harper, post-Obama, post-truth era, which raises the question, is there life after truth? Of course, we gave up on biblical absolute truth years ago in the culture wars, and we replaced it with political correctness, which is also absolute. It's very black and white, and anyone who does not conform to its creeds was punished with ridicule. But in 2016, political correctness also suffered some devastating blows because the rules have again been changed. During Brexit in England and uh, the US election, 
Facts were routinely falsified and lies became legal tender in public discourse. But they're no longer lies. They're actually alternative facts. Because now you're not just entitled to your own opinions, you're also entitled to your own facts. When Kellyanne Conway introduced the idea of alternative facts, it was like Alice leading us down a rabbit hole into a place where we're wondering, what is going on? It's all very confusing. It's like saying any, anyone can make their own currency and, and use it in the marketplace. And the question is, what does this mean for the Christian church that's used the same gold standard for 2,000 years? How do we conduct our business in these chaotic times? How do we stay relevant? Well, I believe there's two priorities that we have to focus on as our culture passes through the looking glass of fake news and alternative facts. Because this is not new. This is something we have experienced before. We've been there. And I'd like to take you back to the original post-truth era and show you how to avoid being deceived by the myths that make you miserable as we affirm the truth that sets us free. A long time ago, in a garden far, far away, it was another day in paradise. And we read in Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the absolute truth. But there were those who had other opinions. Chapter 3 begins by saying, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The Bible identifies the serpent as the reptilian persona of Satan the master ventriloquist. Did God really say? Eve should have run screaming, Adam, Adam, there's an animal that talked to me. It was really creepy. But Eve didn't run. Maybe because the serpent's question intrigued her. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's the first question in the Bible. And it's a question that's still discussed in the classrooms of every major theological college and seminary. Did God actually say that? Or maybe someone wrote it down wrong or it was changed over the course of history. Isn't it possible? Scholars and skeptics love asking questions, which is okay as long as you're honestly looking for answers. But this question had a hidden agenda. It was subversive. It was intended to undermine God's credibility and to sabotage creation itself, which is pretty ambitious. But of course, Satan is no underachiever. He's got his eyes on the prize, and you should see his bucket list but he needs our cooperation to accomplish his objectives. Did God really say, you must not eat from 
any tree in the garden. Well, only one tree was off limits because it reminded them of their place in the created order. It was a very important restriction. You see, God had given them dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. They ruled over every living creature that moved on the ground. They owned every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. That's billions and billions. That's the rainforests and the redwoods. They had an all-access pass to planet Earth. Now, when you get that kind of VIP status, you might begin to overestimate yourself. That's why they needed some limits. Adam and Eve were still subordinate. They were accountable to God who was their superior. And this tree put everything into perspective. And we still need things like that today. We need limits because sometimes we get overconfident. We overestimate ourselves. We overreach. We see that in the area of science all the time because many scientists do not believe that there are any limits, that they can virtually do anything. Some scientists, however, do have more of a humble perspective. Like Carl Sagan, the noted cosmologist, who said, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you first have to create the universe. That's true. You see, God created this cosmic kitchen and he stocked it with all the ingredients and all that our greatest scientists are really doing is kneading some dough. So while we're making the most delicious apple pie ever, we need something to remind us that we are not God. Adam and Eve needed boundaries and so do we. Now, some of these boundaries are obvious. For example, mentally, we can comprehend finite reality. The baby was seven pounds, three ounces. Congratulations on your birthday. You don't look a day over 99. We can understand things that are finite. What we can't understand is Buzz Lightyear's benediction to infinity and beyond. Infinity? What does that mean? Is that anything like unlimited breadsticks? We cannot measure eternity with the yardstick of human reason. Because as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. What do you mean God always was? How can he already be in the future? And how do we understand the Trinity? Well, our minds simply cannot cross the boundaries that God has established. This is a reminder of who we are. Although we've split the atom and walked on the moon and deciphered the genetic code, and although you may have over a hundred friends on Facebook, you're not sovereign. You're a subordinate. There are limits. And that's also true morally with one difference. Mental boundaries are impossible to cross. Moral boundaries are a matter of consent. 
Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Sex is for marriage only. This is a boundary that God has established. Now, if we trespass into the forbidden zone, then we are committing treason. We're telling God, I don't accept your authority. I do not respect your rules. I'm quite capable of making my own decisions. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. This really was the issue that Eve was facing. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So why was Eve contemplating this one restriction? Why didn't she focus on all the riches that God had given them? Every tree in the garden is yours. You know, if you start enjoying God's blessings, you probably won't even have time to sin. Why was Eve talking to a snake? She should have been wrestling with the lions and running with the giraffes. The Lord God said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. God could have said, you know, uh, you can only eat from one tree. I hope you like papaya. But God's grace is generous and immeasurable. You can eat from any tree in the garden. And when we're born again, we become new creations in Christ. And from then on, we have limitless opportunities available to us, just as they did in the original edition. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How many of those have you had the time to experience? You need more than a lifetime for that. Malachi 3.10, God says, Look, I'd love to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you don't have room enough to contain it. God's grace is beyond measure so that we don't need anything else. We just need to respect the boundaries. The woman said, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Touch it, where did that come from? The forbidden has always fascinated us. How close can we get to temptation without actually committing sin? I'm not going to taste it, but what if I just touch it? What if I just take a closer look? You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Are you serious? You're not going to die. And the angels gasped and creation groaned. You will not surely die. 
That bold statement shook Eve's worldview to its foundations. We accept everything the Creator has said without question. And yet here is a qualified spokesman of the opposing viewpoint. I had no idea you could do that. It was fascinating. There's something thrilling about defiance. It gives you a rush, at first anyway. You will not surely die. And the era of post-truth had begun. And this is still one of Satan's most successful lies. Or should we say alternative facts? Why so serious? Don't worry about the consequences. It's all good. That's why you don't hear about Judgment Day anymore. Hell is politically incorrect. We already get squeamish about torturing terrorists at Gitmo. Hell? No way. Because God is a loving God. He's merciful, forgiving. Come on, Eve. You know the Creator. He wouldn't harm an ant. You will not surely die. Ideas have consequences. And this is one of the most deadly. But let's give Satan some credit. He was partly right. Because Adam and Eve did not flatline when they disobeyed. It wasn't instantaneous, like arsenic. It was more like asbestos, gradual. They began to die. Now, spiritual death was immediate. Their soul was contaminated with guilt. But physical death was inevitable. That consequence was delayed. So Satan kind of gave Eve a half-truth. But what happens when you mix a half-truth with a half-lie? It's like pouring fresh water into a glass containing cyanide. A half-truth is always contaminated. So we have to be very careful because there's a lot of ideas in circulation that are only partly true. Most of the things that we hear on TV and on the news and on the late night talk shows sound good, but they're only partly true. They're progressive, they're inclusive, they're tolerant, but they're only partly true. So the question is, what's the other part? If something is only partly true, do not swallow. Instead, thirst for God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And as you enjoy God's generous love, don't forget about his truth. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. In the very next chapter, Genesis 4, we have the first homicide. Cain kills Abel. There's a tragic consequence. In the next chapter, we read about the biologic, biographical sketches of the first ones. Verse 8 says, altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Verse 14, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. And that phrase is repeated over and over again. And then he died, he died, he died. So, 
Satan was busted. The lie has been exposed. That's why nobody believes him anymore. If only that were true. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. There are consequences. It's all good is a myth. Because judgment day is coming. It hasn't been canceled. Someone said if God doesn't judge our decadent culture, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's all good. You're not going to die. Satan's been busted. Well, let's fast forward thousands of years to the fullness of time. To John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us, and we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Finally, there was someone in the world who could tell us the truth. And what he said was never partly true. It was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is Jesus of Nazareth, who's on a rescue mission. And he's recruited a number of disciples to take over when he's gone. But first, they have to understand the truth. So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we read, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is giving his disciples a midterm exam. They replied, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So there were a lot of alternative facts in circulation. But who do you say I am, Jesus asked. Simon Peter answered, I know, I know, ask me, I know, I know this. You are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Peter made a positive ID, not because he had a higher IQ than the other disciples, because this truth was also beyond the boundary of human intellect. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Someone said that the incarnation was like the pilot episode of Undercover Boss. John 1.10, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. But what we can't reach by research or reason has to be revealed to us. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Peter had been listening to God. And so what he said was not partly true, it was Totally true. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For Peter, it was all about Jesus. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter couldn't believe his ears. Are you serious? That's not possible. 
For the first time in their relationship, Peter had discovered a logical contradiction. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Now, he wasn't being disrespectful. His objection was motivated by love. Peter loved Jesus more than all the others. So he couldn't imagine any harm coming to his Lord. This shall never happen to you. Because you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. We've seen your power. You heal lepers, you cast out demons, you command storms, you walk on water. Nothing is impossible for you. Nobody's going to be able to defeat you. This shall never happen to you. It's all good. It was a well-intentioned rebuke, motivated by a loving heart. But Peter didn't realize that there was another conversation going on. Peter said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus heard, you shall not surely die. Jesus turned and said to Peter, out of my sight, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Satan was at it again. It was the same lie that he used in Paradise Lost. You're not going to die. It's all good. The sinister ventriloquist was speaking through a dummy. And Jesus immediately recognized the source. You are a stumbling block to me. Out of my sight, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Boy, that's quite a rebuke. That could put you in therapy for the next three years. Did Jesus temporarily shut off his love so he could vent his anger? I think what this reaction reveals is how important truth is to God. Jesus loved Peter with all his heart. But not even his love could ignore a direct contradiction of the truth. This shall never happen. It was another attempt to sabotage salvation. You don't have to die. It's amazing how quickly Peter transitions from a theological genius to a heretic. That's got to be world record time. In verse 17, Jesus says, This was revealed to you, Peter, not by man, but by my Father in heaven. And then in verse 23, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, that's our problem right there. It's so easy to shift from things that are true to things that may be only partly true. In fact, Jesus equates the fallen logic of human reason with the doctrine of demons. Out of my sight, Satan. That's because the natural mindset of humanity has a lot more in common with darkness than it does with light. John 3.19 says, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. What kind of men? Bad men, yeah, good men, religious men, teachers of the law, chief priests, Men love darkness instead of light. That is our natural inclination. That's why Satan's ideas make so much sense. 
He's speaking our language. He tells us what we want to hear, and he's so positive. It's not that bad. Don't worry about the consequences. It's all good. Now, that's a myth that will make you miserable, eternally miserable. And that's why Jesus rejected it with extreme prejudice. The last time it was all good was back in the garden. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God looked at what he'd created and said it, it was good, it was good, it was very good. That's when it was all good. It was all good except for one thing. Can you imagine a world where there was only one sinful choice? Now we have unlimited opportunities for evil. Jesus went on to say in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. There it is again, death. It's always about death. Because death is part of the process of salvation. The ugly truth is that we are sinners under the death penalty of divine judgment and we can't save ourselves and there's no time off for good behavior. But instead of dying to sin, there's an alternative. We can die to sin instead of dying in sin. We can become born again through Jesus Christ who died for us to make this possible. Only by his death is there salvation. God's love makes salvation possible. Accepting God's truth makes salvation personal. And when you're saved, something happens. When you're saved, then it's all good. Because Romans 8.28 says, For God makes all things work together for our good. When we're saved, we begin to recover the blessing of knowing that it's all good because God is doing it. So God's love makes salvation possible, but God's truth makes salvation personal. And we need both. We need love and we need truth. And that's the problem these days because love is what makes us so popular. When Christians show up compassion, they get approval, maybe even applause. That's why we have tax-exempt charitable status because our love is considered to be a positive benefit on society. Nobody's criticizing us for our love, but when Christians proclaim the truth, people get offended. They get angry and they don't like us anymore. So the temptation is to crank up the love and to mute the truth. We can avoid a lot of criticism if we just reimagine the gospel and make it more user-friendly, more progressive. But that would be malpractice. Because if you know the truth about a life and death situation, you have no right to remain silent. The Bible doesn't say that love will set us free. The Bible says truth will set us free. And freedom will always be relevant.
So as followers of Christ in this post-truth era, in the chaos of alternative facts, we have two priorities. We have to spread the warmth, but we also have to spread the word. Half-truths are not enough. So let us have in mind the things of God and not the things of man. Because only the truth will set us free. Father, we thank you that it really isn't even that difficult to know the truth. It is so clearly explained in your word. Thank you that we can understand it, apply it to our lives. But above all, Lord, help us to avoid those things that are partly true because it's the other part that will make us miserable. It's the truth that sets us free. And it's the truth that leads us into a life where you are making all things work together for our good. We pray this, giving you thanks in Jesus' name.